Welcome to season six of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. This is where the truth is told in craft beer, quite possibly the only place. My job is to interview the breweries, distributors, and retailers on the front lines of craft beer all over the world. Not the ones that pretend they're successful while bleeding cash flow and profitability every month, but the honest ones that share the truth of their pain, their struggles, and their loss. With your help, we'll make this industry better by admitting when it's not, by pointing out the impossibility of the business model and the headwinds of the marketplace in every country all over the world. This season will be the most diverse one yet. We'll go back in time, across ocean and deeper into what we can do to prevent beer business disaster. So thank you for joining me on my quest to uncover how not to start a damn brewery. This seems to be a good idea. Let's give this a couple of months. This seems a good idea. Let's give this a couple of months. And to start with, yeah, your profits go back up again. Your turnover goes back up and then it drops off and then it goes back up and then it drops off. And yeah, if it looks like it's not a solid thing for several months, just stop it out <laughs> it's it's just throwing good money off the bat it's important to me to dig deep and wide in the u.s craft beer scene and while i plan to maintain at least 80 percent of my content domestically we can't solve the problems of the business of craft beer with just a u.s-based myopia so i decided to search the globe for stories of craft beer closures in other countries that's how i found myself in steve dunkley's orbit listening to his story and the story of manchester's beer nouveau steve started small as hell because in the uk you can open a brewery in a garage you can bottle by hand and you can even deliver your beer on a bike and apparently on public transportation he created a brewery that researched and resurrected historic styles, incubated other breweries, and opened an oasis for the weird. And if he had to do it all over again, he'd just stay in his garage. Now what does that say about the industry when artistic, creative brewers bring brains, heart, and soul to their craft, and even they can't make the business of craft beer work? Listen to the story of Steve Dunkley and Beer Nouveau, and you tell me. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet, and then send it to your house, in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, enter Dan Brewery at checkout for 10% off your sensor, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, Steve, I want to welcome you to this show from a, all the way across the pond. Thank you for joining us today. You've got a lot of insights and experiences to teach us that are different than what we experience in the States, but I have a feeling based on what I've looked over so far, it's not that different. Welcome to the show today. Well, great to be here. We're going to let you run and kind of educate us on what's going on over there. But before we get too deep into kind of the boring business nuts and bolts, Tell us who you are. Like, how did you get started in this whole thing? I know you ran pubs for a while, but before that. Like- yeah, it's um, they have been doing this now for about a couple of weeks short of 35 years I've been making beer. <laughs> so it's this wonderful little loophole in English law. So you can't buy beer if you're under 18. You can't give beer to somebody who's under 18. You, you, there, there were a couple of exceptions previously, but they're all gone. But if you make it yourself, you're not breaking any laws. So I bought my dad a homebrew kit. He never used it. I used it. So at 14 years old, I, I started making beer. And um, 
it was fine until um, I started selling it to my mates at school. And um, <laughs> then the police came around and had a word with me, uh, with my parents, with the word being neglect. And they, um, I had to promise not to brew beer until I was at least 16, because the legal drinking age over here is 18. And they were kind of OK with you at home with your parents when you're 16. But they just thought that 14 was too young. But um, not long after I turned 18, I started working in the pub as a glass collector. Within six months, I was full time. And six months after that, I was the assistant manager pretty much running the place got fully trained up as the cellarman so probably looking after uh, the beer that we had there and this is you know back in about 92 so way before the craft beer revolution it's only really at the start of what we had over here of the microbrewery revolution where cast beer was starting to come back and you were starting to get breweries opening up at about the six or ten barrel level so about roughly 200 litres so what, 1,200 to 2,000 litres. It was really good and it was enjoyable. There's a lot of new stuff going on. I just loved doing it and ended up getting headhunted and travelling around a few different parts of the country to go and work in pubs. Eventually, I left bar work, but I was working in IT and marketing agencies, building the websites, mostly for wine importers and spirits brands, and so still in the hospitality industry. And then I dropped out of that about nine years ago, I think, and um, opened up a brewery. Uh, literally just licensed my homebrew kit in my garage because it was much more fun. And also, think about then why you know, why I would do that. It was a lot of people say oh, I wanted to make the beers that I wanted to drink. Nobody else was doing them, and for me, it was just it was much easier than actually working. So you, you know, your hobby is great fun, and you can if you can start making money from it. It's like, yeah, let's go along with that, and it was really quite good fun to start with. But it just kind of grew and expanded. Were you homebrewing <laughs> the whole time that you were working in the pubs? Like, was that kind of a consistent? part of your thing and if so what were you making mostly yeah there was a few sort of like there'd be a couple of years gap here and there but yeah mostly i've been brewing all of the time but just to make a beer that i would drink at home nothing sort of like spectacular nothing really experimental it's just a nice standard pale ale that would just be sort of like on in bottles ready for me to drink at home and when if i fancied a beer rather than having to buy any in and was that so the homebrew revolution in the states was there's a lot of reasons for it but one of the big reasons was that there was a period where we couldn't get anything worth a shit and so if mm. you wanted to drink something that didn't suck you had to make it and there was even a period which is long gone now where it was cheaper to homebrew than it was to buy it mm. uh, it's actually not really anymore and so what was the thought like was that you just couldn't get a decent pale ale in Manchester or what was the why were you homebrewing well I was living all over the country at yeah. the time I moved around quite a bit and um, yeah, there were there were good beers out there, uh, but usually I wasn't living in city centres. I was living out in the suburbs or in villages nearby because the rent was a lot cheaper. So if I wanted to go out drinking, it would be a case of getting a train into the city or to uh, or to stop off on my way home from work in another city. And it's just convenience, really. And um, it was much cheaper to just make it at home it was working out usually about 50 pence a pint whereas in the pub it was about well back then about 280 320 a pint so it was much much cheaper so well i've got to pay for the train i've got to pay for travel if i'm out i'm gonna get hungry and i'll have a kebab on the way home (laughs) i could just stay in and have a couple of pints and not have to worry about it and when i was working in the some of the marketing agencies i was working on american time as well which would, you know, is much later. It's, what uh, now? It's three in the afternoon here for me, and it's what um, nine in the morning for you, or something. Yep. Is it? So yeah, we're way ahead of that. That so it'd be getting in quite late at night, and I'd already done a day's worth of work, and then having to hang around and have phone call meetings and continue working with the people over there. It's just like well, I'm just gonna have a pint while I'm doing this. So a lot of the time the pubs are closed as well. So if you're working the odd hours, and a lot of time it was working the odd hours, it's just like you we can't just finish work and now you know I finish work, I'm gonna go out for a pint because it's now eleven o'clock at night. 
eight or twelve at night. So you couldn't do that. So you just had one at home, really, and just chat to people online. And so you talked about how you just you decided you were going to do your own brewery, and obviously mm. that had to be in a way. You're, you're in the industry, right? You're you're serving beer, you're drinking beer, you're experiencing various different mm. beers. Uh, what were you going to do different? Like, what what was the reason why Beer Nouveau well, needed to exist? Yeah, I'm a bit of a cantankerous old git. Um, I picked that up, actually. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've been doing this for so long, um, just sort of like drinking and working with beer since the early 90s. I was sort of like surfing them and that. I remember, at least I thought I remembered, how good the beer back then was. When I moved to Manchester, I was part of the homebrew scene here, we helped set up the Manchester Homebrew Group. I'm still a member of it and we still, you know, help run it. A lot of people's memories of these beers were there weren't memories of them they were just like what they'd heard from people like mm-hmm. oh it's boring brown beer it's rubbish it's crap and it's like, i was thinking no i used to really enjoy drinking these beers but you couldn't get them because the breweries had changed the recipes so much they'd watered them down the ingredients were much worse uh, quality from them and they weren't the same beers so i'd started with my homebrew dent uh, once i'd set up it properly in manchester because i had a nice garage here that i could put the brewery into I started finding these old recipes from the 60s and 70s and the 80s and recreating them as they used to be rather than as the breweries now brew them just to kind of prove the point that these beers were actually pretty good beer. It kind of got the people like, yeah, this is this is really good. I didn't know that you, know, you should you know, you make, you're making more of this. You should do a thing about this. So I then suddenly thought, well, people want this. It's good quality. It is something different. This was around a time when the laws hadn't changed in England. It's just people hadn't realised that you could open up a brewery for no cost. As long as you registered with HMRC, you know, our duty people and you paid the duty. And as long as you're brewery was the same standard as a commercial kitchen then it didn't cost you any money to set up and to sell your beer so if it all goes to itself it all goes apart it doesn't matter i won't have lost any money because you literally could do this in your garage right you said that's how i started i licensed my homebrew kit i built it myself it was made out of old kegs um old um eco kegs so it's um the hdpe plastic as well bits and pieces i put together the my brewing bench was made out of old pallets looking back on it and i was like how how on earth did i think that i could do you know that this was acceptable this was okay but Hold it on. was i was that's, that's my job to ask that question steve <laughs> <laughs> but this is it you you think about it I think, no it was actually okay it was hygienic everything was getting scrubbed down with acid at the end of the days it was all kept very you know very well there was no issues i was doing tests to make sure there was no infections and no bugs or anything in the beers it was all good and it worked and the beers sold i was only doing them by bottles it was only 40 liter batches at a time so it was only about 30 liters went into bottles so usually about 90 bottles and i would deliver them to bottle shops so this was around the time where we got our first real sort of like explosion of bottle shops and a couple of bars were sort of like taking it in from all these brewers because they figured out that you know a lot of people have figured out that you can sell your beer if you just license it so several homebrewers started to do that um and in manchester especially we had a seat there was Torside, first class fifo bruco me and a couple of others as well and we we're just all members of the homebrew group like well we can do this so we all kind of start doing it and it's the time that you'd also had some a lot of money was setting up breweries as well so um some of the bigger ones were setting up just seemed to it's a very exciting sort of time but everyone else was just making all these wonderfully big hoppy you know pale ales or the ipas and the dippers and there was me making my 1960s bitters and um it was something different so it kind of went quite well 
people said, oh, yeah, you, you're the guy that does the old recipes. One, yeah, they said, oh, have you done this one from 1910 or 1920? I was like, um, I'd never even heard of that bit. So I started looking for older recipes and started recreating those ones to get an idea of what was going on. And next thing you know, I'm the guy that, that recreates the, beer, the beers that they made in Egypt and, and, the, and the old Viking ales. And I've become a bit of a beer historian just by wanting to prove a point that beer didn't actually used to be as bad as people say it was. It was actually pretty good. And yeah, next thing I know, I've got this whole thing lined up. <laughs> so question, I think it's kind of an obvious one, but without giving away too much of your recipes or whatever, tell me about what what had changed. Like, what, So you're making... And if you want to call the breweries out, I'm happy to have you do that. But you're making modern beers the way they used to be made when they made good enough beer to get them to the point that they got large. What did they change? What were you doing differently with those recipes than what they're doing today? One of the main examples I use with this is a beer called Bass. I think you get it over there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Bass is Burton number one, uh, the Red Triangle beer. If you look at the recipe now compared to the recipe in 1960, it's different malts, different hops, different yeast and different water profile. The whole thing's different. all totally different. It's not the same beer in the slightest. So one of these sort of like death of a thousand cuts, and we've been seeing this a lot with um, a lot of the, the, the large brewers or the longer term brewers, a hop suddenly isn't available, so they have to switch out for something similar. And they know that this is going to happen, so they'll do a few batches that are half and half and before it gets switched over. Or malt price goes up a lot, so they'll switch out, say, using a, a dark chocolate malt, a chocolate malt for a black patent malt and a little bit of crystal. Or they'll start blending it around slightly. So batch to batch, you can really not really tell much difference. But if you take it from, you know, 30 years ago, or 50 years ago or 70 years ago to now, and you put them side by side, they're, they're nothing alike. They just completely changed. Every brewery will tweak their recipes as hop harvests come in, as the malts like harvests come in. Your malt year to year, the, the maltsters will try and make it as standard as they can, but they will vary it. Your the paleness of your pale ale malt will change slightly in colour. The amount of nitrogen it's in it will change slightly. Your efficiencies you get in, in from it will change slightly. And unless you're on top of that every single brew that you do and keeping an eye on all of the ingredients and testing before every single brew it's going to tweak it's going to change slightly so it's just and the other one is costs as well trying to make more money from certain things so some a lot of time the main change is the beer drops in strength so you've got beers out now that are about 4.8 percent abv that used to be six uh, 6.6 percent and it's the only thing that's the same is the name it's all completely changed and what we were doing was getting the, the beers from those old recipes and putting them out and people see what they were like compared to how they are now. And it's then got people thinking about how beer changed over the years and and, and thinking more about the historical side of things. Interesting. So uh, we kind of all know that anecdotally, but I don't think most of us have been able to get a hold of uh, Anheuser-Busch's recipe for for what that shitty beer tastes like in the 40s, but it's probably <laughs> way better. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, they're, um, yeah they're, they're, they're quite tight with their recipes. They don't give them out so much. I was really quite lucky that because I've been around for so long, I, I know a lot of the, um, I've ended up knowing a lot of the brewers from these uh, places places who were you know who were brewing in the, in the 60s 70s and 80s who have taken copies of the recipes home with them just to you know to work on or do something and then ended up ha- having a copy at home though so i've got a folder somewhere on my computer that's just photographs of brewery books from just random places it's, it's really quite weird <laughs> so i see like, so, yeah. that's awesome especially though. the handwritten notes in there and you're trying to think what what does that say right yeah, it's some term. Doctors. <laughs> that's funny all right so talk to me a little bit about the brewery itself you had a low barrier to entry mm. which is cool you're able to do it in your garage the name was, like, um, how'd, how'd you pick the name um halfway down a bottle of absinthe um <laughs> just halfway <laughs> 
Yeah, I was um, halfway down a bottle of absinthe and trying to come up with names from it. Originally, it was going to be called Dunkley and Moss, which is a, an old way of naming breweries. We're named after the families. And my mate Phil, who's a never home brewer, um, we were going to start doing this together. So all the bit was, it was going to be Dunkley and Moss rather than Moss and Dunkley because it was in my garage. He then dropped out because he just decided it's not fun if, you, if we're doing it to actually make a living rather than just to have a few beers and get drunk. Because it was kind of what we were doing. Um, there's a few of us. I had this homebrew kit slash bar in my garage that I was like making in there. And it's a, you know, a, a drunkard's equivalent of a man cave, really. So we, so there's a few of us and our partners. And our partners were kind of thinking, you're, you're just going to the pub every weekend and doing nothing but drinking. <laughs> Do something more practical. So, you know, I, I built a bar in my garage. So we'd come here and we'd, we'd be making beer of a weekend whilst drinking beer of a weekend and um, just having a laugh. So I had to decide to change the, the, the name and I was having a few drinks and I think it was getting to the Beaujolais Nouveau season and I thought, well, seeing as I'm sort of like doing this, you know, looking at how the beers have changed over a year and yeah, alcohol was involved. So that's where kind of where the, the beer Nouveau comes in. Plus I really like Art Deco and Art Nouveau and it, it just, I, I found this picture uh, that I thought, you know that just would make an absolutely great brewery logo and it's then kind of stemmed from there really so early <laughs> on i assume you didn't have kind of a written formal business plan with a three and ten year outlook oh not at that point no it's basically <laughs> let's license this and sell it um <laughs> it, yeah well the thing is i did that for six months it was going really well i was selling everything i could make so i wasn't working at that time i was finishing writing a book the wife turned around to me and said right you're going to either have to get a job now or <laughs> take this brewery a bit more seriously. And I can't do nine to five. I've never been able to do nine to five. I suck at it. So I decided, well, let's make this into a business. I'll actually have to take it seriously and turn it into a business. So I sat down then and worked out how much I could expand in the garage with a target of two years to see what this is. We'll then fill the garage. We'll, we'll meet that level. Then we'll t see from there about whether we, you know, we expand into a, a big proper brewery. And was this and all I, still solely bottles or were you starting to do draft? Part of this was that I would start doing the odd cask here and there. Because, um, again, it's still on a 40-litre system. Mm -hmm. So the kegs were 30-litre, but I didn't have... The, the beers didn't suit kegs. They were old-fashioned style of beers. And the casks are generally 40 litres. So I decided mostly it would be bottles, with the occasional cask just for beer festivals. I was delivering all the bottles by bike. So <laughs> I just had a, a crate fixed to the back of my bike that a, a, a bottle crate would fit into. I'd like to see a picture and, of that, by the way. Oh, I'll, I'll have to dig one yeah. out. It's, it's brilliant. Um but yeah, so I'd just be cycling about 20 kilometers just to deliver a case of beer or occasionally if they wanted, if a bottle shop wanted a couple of cases, I'd just, I've got some old sort of like post office sacks. So I'd just take them on the tram because I live about six minutes walk from a tram stop. So uh, there was one memorable occasion I, I got on the tram clinking a lot and the tram thankfully went straight <laughs> through to the place where this bottle shop was. And I, I walked in really quite heavily weighed down with all of this. And there was a lot of funny looks on the tram and from people. As I was like, have you just delivered beer by public transport? Like, yeah, <laughs> why not? So it was a lot easier than taking it by the bike. But yeah, we I <laughs> then hit that target in six months. So it's like, OK, I'm, I'm now at capacity. I can't fit any more fermenters in here. I'm brewing two times a day, three, three days a week. That's it. Then this looks like it is actually working. There was a, a sort of like a demand for it. So sat down and then did a, a proper a five-year business plan of expanding into some premises with a, a six-barrel or ten-barrel kit 
and looking at then distributing mostly in cask rather than in bottles because the margins on cask aren't as good but the they are much better once you take your time into it because it's just me doing all of this so yeah it's you, you make more money per bottle but once you consider the time it takes to fill all of the bottles and the time it takes for the bottles to condition properly, then it, it's suddenly it's a, with staff wages in, it's a lot less profitable to make bottles than it is to make casks, which you just fill up straight from the fermenter and that that's it. They're kind of then ready to go. So we looked at that and went having a look at a couple of different premises where there was some breweries that were up for sale just to ruin equipment. It looked like, yeah, this could just about be doable. We could max out the credit cards the wife had a little bit of money. We approached a couple of friends who um, said, yeah, they'd invest in it and they'd lend us a bit of money for it. And the government here has um, sort of like a, a business bank for startups where they'll lend you money up to a certain amount with a very low interest rate. But to get that, you have to have a proper solid business plan and they look at it and they go through and say, right, yeah, you need to check into this. You've not thought about that. So they were a good help doing all that. So we worked out we could, if we found the right place, we could do this. And pure coincidence, a brewery came up for sale in Manchester City Centre and, and on site, all fitted out, ready to go. That was built by an engineer rather than sort of somebody buying in brewing equipment. He built it himself, converting wine tanks. So it was designed for traditional style brewing rather than the modern style one with the conical fermenters and, and the closed tops and it was just perfect and it was a it was a decent price so we said right okay let's let's go for it so we moved into there and we were sharing um it was an, in a large railway arch and we were sharing that arch with a company called cave direct who are a bit wholesalers they just all i did cans and kegs and bottles mostly so as soon as we moved in part of the plan was put a bar in open up a tap room because this Tap rooms were starting to be heard of over here, but they hadn't really taken off. The only brewery in Manchester that had one before was was a one called Alphabet Brewing Company, who have recently closed down this year as well. So we thought, okay, we'll do this. And they're, they're, weirdly, in the in the brew that I bought, there was a bar in there, but it was in pieces in the corner. Hmm. Um, it, he'd got it from a pub and you know, they dismantled it, and he put it in the corner. He just never got around to putting it up. So we put the bar up and. I think it was within two weeks of buying it, we had our first sort of like open day, mostly selling beer that had been brewed in the garage here. And it was busy. It was something new. It was something different. And it went down incredibly well. And for the first six months or so, we were opening once a month and it was brilliant. It was beyond dreams, as it were. And then the second six months were just nice and steady. And we thought, yeah, this is this is working. So it got to about a year afterwards and the people were sharing the arch with they needed to move out. They needed bigger premises. And we, I mean, the wife, we sat down, we talked about it and thought, well, we wouldn't, our only extra cost here is the rent will be doubling each month. So can we make that on what we're, we're making? And it was like, yeah, we can, especially if we open up the bar every weekend. So we took on the entire premises. We built a bigger bar at the other end. Uh, we opened up every weekend. You know how much bigger it was? Like how much space you went from to how much um, you got in the end? We went from being able to fit about 50 people in to being able to fit about 250 in. Holy shit, I don't know so, it's that big. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, um, it was quite a big place. So, um, yeah, we moved through to that. And I think this is where it kind of started to go wrong because we were opening every weekend. It meant that... Every Monday, I was phoning up every pub I could think of, trying to see if they wanted to buy any beer. Every Tuesday, I was driving around or going around to all of the places, mostly by bike, still 
talking to the landlords and the managers about trying to convince them to start stocking me. Every Wednesday, I was brewing and cleaning. Every Thursday, I was delivering the beer. Every Friday and Saturday, we were running the bar. And every Sunday, I was phoning up people to chase up unpaid invoices. So it was a full-on seven-day-a-week job. And that then just went on for about five years or so like that. But we went on for a few years like that. And then COVID hit. And at that point, we just like, I'm knackered. All of a sudden, I've got you know time off because we can't open. And suddenly realised how worn out I'd become. Because the wife would help me at the bar. But other than that, it was just that I was still doing it. Yeah, it was just like, no, I'm tired. I'm done. I can't I can't keep this up. So we had a look at, you know, could we employ somebody with the margins that we got? It's like, no, we can't. We're not making enough money to employ somebody to do this. Because by then, it's a, after, after about a year or two of delivering out to the pubs, I'd kind of stopped doing that. And I only sold everything over the bar. It meant that I got two extra days a week, but that was still working on site to provide a wider range so that we could have a fully stocked bar. It's changed the business model around just to try and make it so I wasn't always worn out. But then, yeah, once COVID hit and we actually got all of this time off, it's like, I'm done. I can't, I can't, I can't keep up with this. So we thought, and I think this is a common thing with people whose brews are closed, is I'll give it a couple more months and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, and then that and it turns into a year months. or two. And- yeah. And we just got to the point, it's like, no, I'm done. I'm, 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 the market had completely changed. A lot less people were going out post-COVID anyway. A lot of people just didn't have the, the money to spend anymore. By then, there was a lot more breweries opened up in Manchester, a lot more brew taps, so a lot of competition. And the people that were going into them, so the people that are setting these places up, generally had a lot more business sense than I did and a lot more financial backing than I did. So whereas my bar, I built myself, my main bar, I built myself out of old pallets and um, the furniture was old sofas from another place that closed. And it was very much rough and ready and it but it was very homely. And all of a sudden, I mean, the, my place was, it was very much a dive bar in a, in a railway arch that made beer on site. All of a sudden, the places that were opening up, Lots of money had been spent on them. I mean, they had heating in the winter for a start. Whereas mine had just told people to wear a coat. They had proper doors. Whereas mine was just a big loading bay shutter door that opened up. And they were proper bars attached to breweries. And it became harder and harder to compete with the comfort and the hype. And they said, that, yeah, the trade's dropping off. It's not for me now. I'm too tired. I'm, I could push to try and get it back, but I'm done. So I made the decision last year. I'm, I'm, I'm getting back this time last year. Was like, that's it. I'm winding up. I'm going to close up. And then somebody bought it from me. I brewed for them for a while. And they, I, to be quite honest, I don't think they realised, well, I know they kind of realised what they didn't know what they were getting into uh, and how hard it was. And they've just decided now, a couple of weeks ago, that that's it. They're done as well. They've not been able to get it to pay all the bills. And rather than throwing money at it or trying to figure out where they've gone wrong they said yeah no it's a nice idea but we can't do it so for the yeah. last year i've sort of like had a freelance job brewing for somebody um after selling my brewery to them and now i'm back to selling the brewery again <laughs> and so yeah it's that's, fun and that's why i've now cracked open a beer <laughs> yeah that's definitely how it works so i want to I get a lot more detail about kind of how that worked and i know there's some other breweries that were in there with you but let's uh, take a quick yeah. break and then when we first come back i'd like to really get into some of the good times on the build-up and there's some stories i want to ask you about on some of the cool things i think that you did so let's uh take a quick break we'll be right back yeah all right welcome back uh, like I want to back up a little bit from where we were just to the idea of like, again, a little bit in the startup part. So you, I, I looked up a few different articles and one of the ones I found, you had talked about how when the distributor that you were sharing space with, which 
by the way, would be illegal in the States. It's interesting in itself. But the, <laughs> the rent went up from like 360 to 400. Well, 360 per year to 400 a month is where it went up to. So it's a big change. We were paying about, for half an arch, we were paying about 600 pounds a month. And then when we took on over half of it, that doubled. So it went up to about 1400 a month that we were paying on, on the rent. But the other thing that then suddenly hit us is we suddenly became liable for business rates. And I have no idea how that works over in the States. But over here, you pay money to the council for your police protection, and they never show up. They came in drinking, but they would never come around if you called them. For your bins to be emptied, which they never do because you, uh, if you're, as a business in the UK now, you have to have your own waste disposal contract. Uh, for the maintenance of the roads, and they're always really quite crappy around where we are. For the street cleaning, never gets done until we complain. So I really don't know why we're paying business rates. But if you're below a certain square footage, you are liable for a hundred percent relief on those. But when we took over the the full part of the arts and it got listed as one premises even though there's no dividing wall between it they um decided to do a rent a, a rates review and they came in and they measured it up and they decided that we were large enough now to pay rates which worked out at about a thousand pounds a month so we had gone from paying about six seven hundred pound a month to paying or oh, is it about two and a half thousand a month just to be in the premises hmm. and that was a killer just trying to find an extra couple of thousand a month was an absolute killer. It was almost impossible to do. We were just about managing it. It was a cost we hadn't foreseen when we looked at expanding because we measured the place ourselves and we've, we realised we will be able to get the relief. We won't have to pay rates. And I think we were trading for one month in the full premises before they came out and did a review and said, no, you're going to have to pay it all. So we immediately put in for a revisit from them for them to actually come in and have a look at it properly and go through it with them. And I read up a lot on what qualifies for floor space and what doesn't. And when the, the person came in, it was a different person. And I went through it with them and said, right, so where does this figure you've come up come from? And they measured it and said, I'm not entirely certain how they've come up with slightly more than this. And we worked out, I've got two storage units in there. One was like the coal store and the other was just like a cellar store. They'd counted those twice, one for the floor and then one for the top of them because I had storage stuff on top. So they decided that uh, you know, sort of like empty boxes and bits of wood and empty kegs so they decided that that was usable storage space uh, sort of like floor space and therefore it counted towards it and I tell my person who's measuring at this time I said if you try standing on that you're going to fall through hmm. that's why there's pallets across there to try and spread the weight this is not usable things and they agreed with me so they then dropped the space down again but it still meant I mean that took about five or six months so we were paying that extra 2000 a month, you know, so this extra £1,000 a month in rates that for about five or six months, and we're ne never going to get it back because technically we weren't re owed it. It wasn't a, a wrong measurement. It, we got it re-evalued. So it was, yeah, a lot of money out of the contingency fund that suddenly just disappeared because of um, somebody hadn't really read the, the, the rules that they were supposed to be enforcing. Oh, you, you so, mean yeah, you got that, fucked by government? That's weird. You never hear that story at all. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Well, let's talk about some of the beers you made. I think that obviously is going to be one of the big kind of shining parts of your story. And, you know, obviously yeah, being in Texas, I didn't get them. So talk to me about <laughs> over here. One of the things that we we work with a lot is either kind of one-off seasonals and core beers. And I don't know if that's mm. similar there. Did you have a beer that was sort of a flagship that you had to make? all of and never run out of and or whatever or did you just make whatever you wanted whenever you wanted a little bit of both to be quite honest we used to have core and seasonals over here until craft beer came along really you'd find that your brewer would have three or four 
standard beers and then every quarter they'd release a new beer and then when the microbrewery revolution started happening in the mid to late 90s and we had more and more microbreweries for a lot of the breweries to compete the drinkers always wanted something new something different so even though you could sell a beer into a pub once selling it into them a second time is really difficult the same beer but as long as your first beer was decent they would take a chance on another beer from you so a lot of the the bigger breweries were producing their seasonal beers so you would have their standard beers and then every it got to a point where a lot of them every month they'd have a different beer i w- wasn't really looking to go into that route what i was kind of looking at was i i had two well i started out with three beers um four sorry one was a mild because nobody was making mild and i like mild and i could still brew it on the 40 liter kit so i could just do the odd cask here and there the other one was a straight out bitter um body snatcher which was based on the 1960s boddington's recipe now boddington's pale ale was a big beer in this area at the time in the 80s 90s early 2000s and it was a bit of like the locals drink and it's nothing like it used to be so i just (laughs) I, i was using this 1960s boddington's recipe and it was really nice i had a porter as well that i was called peterloo which was after a historical event here and that was a 1914 porter recipe um so one of the early porters porters when it was mainstream and it's not what people expect it's light it's clean it's easy drinking you can throw pints of that back and i absolutely love it. it's probably the favorite of my beers that i make or one of the favorites i then had an ipa that when I moved out the garage and into the larger kit, I couldn't continue to brew because it was using Simcoe, Amarillo and Mosaic. And there were the three hops that at the same year that I expanded suddenly became very hard to get hold of because a lot of breweries were suddenly opening up. Hmm. A lot of them were really going for these hops and they suddenly they, they couldn't meet demand. So the price went through the roof. And it's like, well, it just doesn't make financial sense to be able to do this because I would lose money on every sort of uh, batch of it that I did. And there's a lot of other breweries doing IPAs at the time. They were starting to do IPAs. So I thought, I'll just hold off on that one. I did do an occasional one, the beer called Satanic Mills, which was a 6.6% stout. That's probably the beer of mine that most people really like. They keep asking me to brew more of. Unfortunately, I had no idea why and, I still, and had never managed it. I couldn't scale it up beyond one barrel. Um, whenever I tried to scale it from 40 litres to, to a barrel, it worked fine. Trying to scale that one up to the six barrel kit, it just wouldn't do it. It just came out weird. Huh. So I've no idea what the issue with that is. But um, yeah, that only ever stayed a, a small batch beer, unfortunately. So yeah, I think the most of that I brewed at any time was 180 litres I managed to get out on, on the one barrel kit. So a, a lot less than the 900 I should have got on the on the bigger kit. But other than that, what kind of happened was it was going back to me looking at the historical beers and the heritage recipes. People would turn around and say, what about this beer? Have you got a recipe for this? Or do you remember this one? Or can you find out about that? So I... My one-offs and seasonals, or more one-offs, it was alongside the cause, I would just find a beer from history and rebrew it. Or somebody would ask me to re- you know, find a recipe and rebrew that. So I started doing that. So you'd, you'd be able to come in and just have something new every time alongside the core beers. But it wasn't me setting out to do these one-offs or these seasonals. It just kind of happened. And that went a bit, started to speed up a bit when I got my first wooden casks. Because I thought, well, if I'm doing all of these heritage beers from the, from the past, I might as well do it right and put them into the wooden casks that they would have been served from. So it got that my bar was, um, you had the beers on hand pull and on keg for, for their taps. 
but there's also wooden casks sat on the back bar with taps in them that you're pouring straight on gravity. So you just open up the tap and it pours straight into the glass on gravity, no gas in it. And the wood cask makes an absolutely massive difference to the beer. So I started doing a bit of writing about how the beer is working in the wood and what's actually happening because it's completely different from barrel aging. And then I had a start getting a few people that would, um, like a couple of archaeologists and that were getting hold of me to say, well, well one in particular is um, studying Egyptology at uh, the university here. Um, he was doing his degree in the use of alcohol in religious ceremonies in Egypt. So he asked, would I be able to brew with him a, a beer from Egyptian times if he could find a recipe? He's like, yeah, sure, let's go for it. And so we recreated that. And then I was working with a couple of archaeologists up in Orkney and we recreated Viking beer. So it got to the point then of like the, 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 the seasonals, you know, the one-offs were just beers from history that I just come across the recipe from and, and rebrewed them and yeah it was great fun but that's kind of how I fell into being a bit historian really and just sort of like doing all this research for all of these sorts of things and it was completely unique so yeah yeah I thought it was cool too that you so you did a crowdfunding program to raise money yeah. to create a couple of different beers Co- yeah a couple um, of questions one what was the money for because you'd raised quite a bit it looked like I'm curious how this worked out the I'd never planned to do barrel aging it ties up a lot of cash so you have to buy the barrels the ingredients and everything is it's bought in and it sits there for for these about two years and that's a lot of money tied up that i didn't have um but people were asking me when i was going to start barrel aging and so if i'm going to do something like this i'll sell it all first and so people could buy the beer they could put in for this crowdfunder so it wasn't a case of give me fifty dollars and i'll get out a sharpie and write your name on the back bar um you know <laughs> you're gonna get cool something <laughs> yeah you're gonna get something back for this so um yeah I just kind of went to town on it really and i said if i'm gonna do this let, let's pick the two beer styles that i'd love to recreate properly one was an east india pale ale and the other was a russian imperial stout so I was having a word with a guy I know who's a who's a monster at the time. He, he now works for a hop company. I say he's a monster. He was sort of like a consultant at a company that made kilning, malting and kilning equipment for people like Coors and AB and Beth and all the, all the massive stuff uh, kit, equipment. But he looked after the test pilot kit in the company's headquarters in, in, in the UK. So um, he said, well, I can do you a ton of malt kilned to a, an 1870s malt pattern if, if you want. I was like, you know, this sounds actually really quite cool. And then my malt rep from the company that I was buying a lot of my malt from came around to me and says, well, I hear you're looking to do this. Why aren't you using our heritage grain? Is that because you're killing it in the way that it would be for today, for modern pale ales. So it's not the same. And we ended up getting those two guys in touch with each other. And we got a load of Chevalier grain um, white kilns. So it's grown for us because it wasn't commercially really available at the time. They killed it white so that you couldn't grow from it. And then they shipped it over to this company, Milton Keynes, who then killed it as it would have been if it was an 18, in the 1870s. Hmm. So, I mean, this all cost, you know, a lot more than I was, you know, you know, had in the bank account at the yeah. time. Because we'd just gone through a couple of expansions and we thought, yeah, this is it. We can make them as accurately as we possibly can. And we did so well that so many people just jumped on the carton and I was absolutely shocked. I had this idea that, you know, I'd, every time that somebody got the, the all-in package, I'd crack open a beer. And that's it. after about two hours of it, be, of, of it being launched, I was wasted. It was, <laughs> I think I was about six beers in. It's like, no, I'm just not opening them anymore. I'm I'm done. I can't. I can't do this. Yeah. So we thought, okay, well, we'll do a third beer as well. So we did an East India Porter. So there was a lot of research into those three beer styles about not just 
here's the recipe, but why the recipe was like that and why they brewed them in certain ways and what actually happened in the barrels. So we were able to do a lot of research on that and challenge a lot of preconceptions about what was going on with this and along the way annoy a lot of old school brewers and sort of like master brewers because they've been taught one particular thing and that's been their sort of like their industry for the last 30 or 40 years and then I come along it's like nah found out it's something different and they don't kind of like that but um once you sit down with a few beers and you talk to them they go oh, yeah I can see where you're coming from on that and, and they start coming around to your way of thinking so yeah we did that crowdfunder and it was just a way of people buying beer before it was brewed and it was but it's good fun there's still a few people who haven't claimed their beer there's one guy he he has claimed it but i've not shipped it to him probably about after a year of him saying can you please send me my beer just is in this whole sort of like thing of winding up a business you get distracted in so many different ways and there's so much you've got to deal with and it's a case of whoever shouts the loudest is the one that gets dealt with the quickest unfortunately and he's been really nice about it so i've actually got his beer set aside now and i kind of doubled up what he what he asked for i don't know what he put in his money for so he's getting extra so they're like I'm sorry please, I'm really sorry but please don't hate me on both of those beers you uh, at least the interview that I read you put the dates on them so it was an 1868 East India Pale Ale and an 1859 Russian Imperial Stout is that because the recipe um, you found is from that time or what was the date what does that have to do with it East India Pale was 74 and that was the date it was um Tetley's East in the Pale Ale. Uh, the recipe was from 1874. The malt that we used, the kilning pattern was Tetley's Pale Malt Pattern. So it was the grain that they were using at the time, they were using Chevalier, kilned the way that they kilned it, brewed to a recipe that they used at, at that time. So this was as accurate as you can possibly get. The only difference that we had was our equipment was a bit smaller than theirs, but um, and we didn't stick it on the boat. So <laughs> other than that, it was exactly the same. He didn't drive the, it around the world before he drank it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the things I kind of didn't realise, and you know, doing all this, found out it's, people think, oh, it was eighteen months, you know, because it, it's a long way to get to India. It wasn't. It only took six months on the boat. They put it in the in the brewery yard for twelve months beforehand, just so that the, the yeast would be working properly and that it would sort of itself out, and then chuck some more hops in it, and then shove it on, on the boat over to India for six months. So it was quite, a, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we found out while doing this. So the East India Porter that was from the 1870s, no, 1870s, I think, as well. So that was around the same sort of time. So that was another one that would have been shipped over to India. And yeah, the Russian Pale Stout was from about the 1850s, uh, late 1850s. Yeah. Yeah, that was two years in the barrel, which just sounds absolutely mad. But the beer that came out at the end of it is just absolutely, it's like nothing else. It's absolutely stunning. You wouldn't recognize it as a Russian Pills Out or Pills Out. It's just smoother, drier, but without being astringent. It's just, yeah, it's, it's just not like a stout. You don't realize how strong it is. And it's come out at what, 13%, <laughs> and it's just so tasty. It drinks like a 6%. So you're just thinking, oh, yeah, there's a bit of body to this. Boom, you're flat on the floor. You don't, you know, by the time you finish the bottle, you don't realize how, how much it gets to you. It's lovely stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So those beers were obviously distributed just on site. Those are you essentially sold futures for it and uh, yeah. created the crowdfunding campaign, which is cool. But what was you, during your sort of build up time? So once you moved into the archway, as like you guys called it, and yeah. you're distributing. You said you only distributed to pubs really kind of for a couple of years. And then did you de- yeah. decide that it wasn't really profitable and decided to go more on site? It was, yeah, the time involved in different aspects of it. Things like people don't realize how much time is spent 
trying to sell your beer. A lot of people, when they want to come into brewing, the first thing I would say to them, because I, I do give people advice, is work out how much beer you think you can sell and then half it at least. Because you can think, right, well, so especially over here, we've got a weird tight house system over here. You think, oh, there's all of these pubs. And you walk in and it's like, it looks like it's a free house, but they're not. They're tied to a wholesaler or to a pub company. And the landlord can't buy in from whoever they want. They've got to buy in through that distributor that deals with them. Or it's um, tied into a brewery where they can then buy from that one brewery. And then you have the actual free houses where they tie up the sellers by getting seller installed. So all of their selling equipment, the coolers, the pumps and all that are installed by another company in exchange that the the pub then buys their beers in. So it's a bit like a brewery loan. It's like, here, I'll, I'll give you two grand's worth of, uh, of seller equipment and we'll fit it for you and we'll maintain it for you. But over the next five years, you have to fill five of your six cask line, or keg lines from us. And over those two years, you're limiting what you can buy and you're probably paying about an extra five to ten grand on top of what you would have paid. So it's a short-term gain, really, but the long-term, it just doesn't work out for pubs. But when you start realising which pubs can actually buy your beer in, it's a lot less than you think. And then when you go into them, you've got to, you're then competing against every other brewery that's in the area. So there's a lot of networking to be done and that takes a lot of time and you've You've got to stay friends with everyone. And there's so many little circles and cliques and sort of like groups going on within the industry anyway. If you're in well with one of them, another set of them will hate you for no particular reason. And even if they've never met you. <laughs> and then you get some dirty tricks that the brewers will pay as well. There was some, um, I was in one pub and the new landlord, the new manager just taking it over. And I was sat at the bar drinking. I was getting on really well with him. And they'd previously had my beer in. And I didn't know it was the new manager's night, first night. I was just happened to be in the bar. And we got on really well. And we were just chatting away about beer and cellaring. And I said, well, you should get some beer and a row beer in. He says, no, I'm not getting any of that in. Why? He says, that stuff's poisonous. Poisonous? Sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. I says, what? He says, yeah, they've got copper cooling coils. That's th- That stuff gets rid of it. make the beer uh, poisonous. You do know I'm the brewer there, don't you? This is my brewery you're slant to my face in front of other customers in here he's like no nah, you're, you're shitting me i'm not you've just had a go you've stuck off my brewery to my face <laughs> in front of uh, other people you don't know who i was you know, what on earth makes you you know where, where'd you hear that and it turned out it was somebody who's a brewer one of my, one of the other breweries in manchester had been telling other pubs that might you know, not to get my beer because it would it could it could kill people so wow. when i found that out i got hold of the brewery and i said that this has been happening they go, oh no it hasn't it hasn't i said you have a word with that person and find out if it has or not no they wouldn't do anything like that um, they sacked them the following week because yes they found out that they had and just as you know to try and make themselves seem better so it's like you don't need to do that so this whole thing that brewers We've got on about it. it's like oh yeah we're all lovely and it's all this rising tide lifts all boats and we're all in this together no bullshit as soon as it comes down to making money they will do a lot of them will do what they can to keep you out i mean i i wouldn't do that i mean we because so the premises we had was large and when i moved through to the to the other half of it and built the new bar we kept the old bar there and i just gave it to other breweries who didn't have their own brew tap or people that were setting up it's like you know this weekend you can have it it's all licensed you sell the beer, you keep the money. I'm not going to take anything off you for it. And it gave several breweries their first 
chance of you know trying to sell a beer direct to the public and yeah okay it wasn't totally altruistic because it made people come out to my place because my place is a little bit further out the city center than anyone else's so it's an extra 10 minute walk so yeah a whole 10 minute walk and um, <laughs> yeah but it got people to come out and see the place and then they would come back and they'd keep doing that yeah that, that, that kind of worked well clearly you made the choice not to go with a distributor you shared a building with a distributor mm. and you didn't so let's take a quick well, break I, only come back i want to hear why and uh, whether you think that was a good idea. So be right back. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine, keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts, but it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business. And her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right. I'm on the edge of my seat. I want to know, so the distribution relationship with the supplier relationship over here in the States uh, is very, let's say tenuous. Let's be nice about it. So you moved into a building that had a distributor. You clearly have been self-distributing all of this time, dealing with issues from the pubs you're dealing with, having to work to get out all the time, a couple days a week to be able to sell. The obvious question would be, why wouldn't you have a distributor do that part for you? And that way you could just focus on making beer and selling it over the bar. It doesn't generally work like that here, though, unfortunately. It doesn't here. Um, <laughs> I I did work with a couple of distributors, but the thing was, so they would come along, they'd pick up the beer and they'd drop it off at the pubs, but they wouldn't sell it. They weren't doing all the sales calls. They weren't doing all the networking. That was still down to me to do that. And that's what took most of the time. So one day a week to deliver or two days a week um, to try and do sales and a, a day a week of chasing things so it only take it down from four days you know to one day so take it down from four days to trying to sell the beer out to three days and the amount of money that they wanted for it it was it just didn't make sense so i think it worked out when i was selling the beer the cask of beer direct to a pub i would be making about 10 pounds a cask on it through a wholesaler i would be making a I'd be making about three pounds a cask on it because they'd be taking their cut for delivering. Mm-hmm. I would still have to burn up the pubs. I would still have to get them to do the sales because even though the, the wholesaler said, yeah, we'll do this. No, the ones I was dealing with just weren't. And the ones that would actually do that, they were really only just dealing with the with the hyped breweries, the modern trendy ones. They weren't dealing with somebody that's just doing something a bit weird and unusual and more traditional. So um, it just didn't financially make sense to go to go with them especially when if i sold the beer over the, the, my own bar i was making about two pounds a pint so i could sell five pounds from a cask and chuck the rest down the drain and i'd still be at the same sort of like profit level as if i was to sell it direct to the pub so yeah i just decided no i'm not gonna i still dealt with a couple of wholesalers after that they'd phone me up and say with supplying the festival can you supply some cask yeah okay hey you know this is how much it is come and collect it and bring me my empties back which also they never did so the distributors over here and the wholesalers, they're very good at taking the pallet of your beer away to the other end of the country and you will never see your casks again. You're casting your casks, that's it, they're gone. Um, this is one of the reasons why a lot of breweries setting up use disposable single-use kegs or they'll hire in kegs and so they'll just hire them, fill them, send them out. 
it's more expensive than reusing your own, but at least you know you, you could, you've got those. Whereas mine, I think when I took on the the, the larger kit, I had two hundred and fifty casks. I can now only account for about fifty or sixty of them. Don't know where the rest are. Wholesalers have taken them. They've gone out. They've been used as plant pots, barbecues, God knows what. They're just kicking around the country somewhere. Yeah. So again, it was just that was costing me money as well. So it's just like it just doesn't make sense to use them and not using them is probably a stupid idea oh you know looking back on it it's one of those things it's like well why am I, you know why am i doing this i can sell the beer over the bar looking back the reason people knew we were there is because they saw the beer on in their local and they say oh hey, it's a manchester beer we can pop over and see them so um yeah you may not you know maybe only be making two or three pounds a keg a cask but you're basically getting paid from your marketing budget so you've got your pump clip on in a pub people can see your branding and you're getting paid to have that there. You're not getting paid much, but you are getting paid to have that there. So, yeah, I think stopping selling into pubs was, at the time, it was a great move. I, you know, I, something I kind of needed to do. But looking back on it, it possibly was not the best decision that I made. Yeah. The at the ones. time, though, you, were, you had strong sales in your tasting room at the time, though, right? So it looked, looked like you could kind of grow yeah. that. You had 250-seat capacity, so it had a lot yeah. of room for people. Yeah. I mean, when we came out of um, COVID, we had, during the lockdowns, there was a compound that's called like a car park up, across the front with a load of wasteland next to it. And during the lockdowns, me and the guy who was helping out at the time, we, we just cleared all of that land up, got all of the saplings out of it, got all the nettles and the brambles out of it, all of the used syringes, all of the empty brandy bottles, all the used condoms. It was a dodgy area before we moved in. Um, so we cleared it up and turned it into a beer garden, planted some apple trees and some hot plants, um, a load of wood chips down there, sorted out some benches, a marquee, a stage. So when we were able to open up for drinking outside, we were our beer garden alone, we would have about 250 people at a time in there, and because they hadn't been out to the pubs for a while, they were drinking solidly. And, yeah, I think the opening weekend after the lockdowns was our best ever weekend. We did absolutely amazing out of it. I ended up having to get a couple of mates to just help me because we need – whereas previously it would just be me and the missus working the bar, we were now up to five people. Um, so there's me and the missus and three other people, and we were just keeping on top of it. We ended up with a, a queue down the street of people waiting to get in, and that went on for a couple of months. And then when the weather turned and it got colder – and they opened up the pubs for people drinking inside again. They just all disappeared. We just didn't see them. But we've still got the capacity. So, yeah, was, in, in total, we can probably seat about 500 people in the place, including the beer garden. So, yeah, it's, it's quite huge. And we were, you know, we were doing it. We had, you know, we were able to pull those numbers. But even before that, we, we had the numbers coming in. And, it, you know, it just made sense not to sell out to the pubs anymore because it was just not the profitable revenue that sort of stream for it. It just didn't make sense to spend so much time for so little back uh-huh. but instead of doing that i should have looked at another way just to get people in or to advertise and get our name out there but it just didn't really seem anything at the time that would have made a, a, a nice replacement for it unfortunately well one of the problems that we definitely see over here and i'm curious whether you have that same issue there just with the pub culture is that a lot of the bars and restaurants in our area and, and i think rightfully so kind of understand that the bigger pool you have in your brewery's tasting room that the less beneficial it is to put your beer on in their pub because you are in competition with them and more often than not you can play some margin game maybe play the beers cheaper or whatever but so so there are bars that will not put a brewery on that are three blocks away because it will compete with their business did you deal with that is that a thing over there yeah it's interesting 
uh, one of the, the first things I've noticed, I was talking to the guys who run one of the bars in Manchester. It's a great bar, Cafe Bimop. So I'm not name-checking many people, but this is a wonderful bar that have helped a lot of breweries get, get uh, sort of like Manchester breweries get going by putting their beers on. I drink in there a lot of time. They really look after their beer. And I was talking to the guys there about some of the beers that they had on, and they got into a right, a very uncharacteristic whinge about uh, breweries with the brew taps. And one of the things they were pointing out is that the price that they were getting the beer in to sell it out over the bar, you look at the cost that they were selling it per pint, and then you look at the cost in the brew tap, and the brew taps is often more expensive than in the bar. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why is that? The brewery doesn't have a middleman. There's nothing there. They've not got any extra cost, but they're still selling it out at the brew taps as much, if not more, than it is in the pubs. And they're just pointing this out to me. It's like, you know, I just don't quite understand it. If you go to a brewery tap, you expect it to be cheaper than it is going to be in the pubs, not the other way around. They were saying there were some breweries that they just don't deal with anymore because they would put the beer, they'd put them, say, we've got this beer, you know, we're going to do that. And, you know, would you like something? You're like, yeah, okay, we'll take that in. And then next thing you know, they're doing a tap takeover event in the pub around the corner the following week. Uh, and they're advertising all of that. So people say, well, I'm not going to have that here now because I can get that next, you know, I'm going to their event next door in a, in a, in a week's time. So there was just no... And there still isn't to quite a large degree. There's no real relationship between breweries and bars they and breweries and bottle shops. A lot of them turn around and say, you've got to build up the relationship. You've got to work with them. And then they go ahead and they'll stick the same beer in, that they're selling to a bottle shop into the supermarket the following day. And the, the supermarkets are selling it cheaper than the pubs can, or the bottle shops can buy it in at. And that's not a way to build up a working relationship between the two. And yeah, we have that issue over here and breweries are still just not quite figuring out that they shouldn't be doing that. So when you say they're for sale cheaper in the grocery store than it would be in the bottle shop, is, does that mean that the brewery charges different prices to different retailers based on volume? Oh yeah, the, the, the supermarkets are able to sell it to the customer cheaper than the bottle shop is buying it from the brewery. Hmm. So there is one um, brewery got um, quite royally roasted on social media because a bottle shop photo, uh, put out a photo of their invoice on the day that this beer got released in the supermarket and it was the same beer three thirty ml cans and the supermarket was selling it for £1.95 and the uh, the bottle shop had bought it in at £2.10 a can so it's like 15 the bottle shop was paying 15 pence more to buy it from the from the brewery than just wandering to the supermarket and buying it which we technically that would actually be illegal for them to do the bottle shop can't go to the supermarket and buy the beer and then sell it on they have to get it through uh, for a wholesaler and breweries are wholesalers so it's just absolutely stupid and yeah they were quite rightly pissed off about that so like you you're selling it to the supermarket and they're selling it out cheaper than i can buy it in at so why is anyone going to buy this from me and you know that this was happening and you sold me this delivered today so you've basically screwed me over and who's, yeah, the, you know, whose it's, fault it's is that st- is the brewery selling it cheaper to the supermarket or is the distributor a taking a haircut cheaper on it they're selling it a lot cheaper to the supermarket for the bulk buying hmm. aspect of it so the profit per unit into the supermarket i mean i actually got approached by a supermarket to stock my beer i decided against it because the financial risk laid purely on me so it's one of our beers and uh, it's the peter Lou de porter 
and the 250th, 200th anniversary of the Peterloo Massacre was coming up and one of the supermarkets locally wanted to stock it. So the rep came in and said, right, you know, we'd like to stock your beer. And I said, right, that's great. How much beer and how much are you willing to pay? And they said, OK, well, your brewery needs to be salsa accredited and all this. And this is accreditations, which is con, to be honest. They come in and say, yes, you are clean. <laughs> Why am I giving you 500 quid a year to tell me that I know what I'm doing? It's an absolute con. So I said, I'm not and I'm not really looking at doing that. But, you know, let's hear what your, you know, what the deal is here, because then I might well do it if it's worth it and comes to cost and fine. It worked out if I was to make it in-house, I would make about 10 pence a bottle selling it into the supermarket. OK, that that mean I'd need to sell 5,000 bottles just to cover the cost of the extra licensing. You know, it's a supermarket, it's a supermarket chain, maybe. If I was to think it contract brewed, so I didn't have to go for the certification thing, I would make two pence a bottle. OK, but it's two pence is two pence. So how much bottles would we have? They said, we would like it to have at least two pallets worth of stock in. OK, so you're buying two pallets worth of stock. No, no, we're, we're just listing it. But we would want it to have you to have that stock in it. So, so let me get this right. I've got to brew the beer or pay for the beer to be brewed and have it all in stock. And I'm paying for all of that. And you might not actually buy any of it. Like, yeah, that is the risk. There's the door. Goodbye. I'm, I'm not forking out thousands of pounds just in case. And you fork out nothing. I said, you know, knock it to one pence a bottle. But you you pay for the stock. And, you know, and, that, and you can do that. And they're like, no, no, this is non-negotiable. I said, right, fine. Then just find somebody else to, you know, to do your commemorative beers. And I said, oh, that's what we'll do. We'll just go to another brewery and get them to brew a beer for Peterloo. I said, well, good luck with that, because I own the trademark for the use of the word Peterloo against beer. And that kind of stopped them in its tracks. But, yeah, he just meant they couldn't get any that beer brewed anywhere else. But the supermarkets will really rip you off. And it just it just didn't make financial sense. I mean, if they turn around to me and say, yeah, we will buy all, you know, two pallets worth of beer at a penny a bottle. Then yeah, go for it. That's you know, it's, it's all money. At least it's profit. Even if it's at half point, pence yeah. a bottle, it's, it's all, yeah, it's all money. You're not going to turn it down. But I'm also not going to stick several thousand pounds on the line on a just in case. Because I mean, I might have done, but about two or three months beforehand, one of the breweries up the road from us, because uh, there were lots of breweries within a couple of minutes' walk from each other. They had just done that with a supermarket, and they got left with a pallet and half a beer. They said, right, we're out of pocket, because it's not just the beer, it's the cost of the bottles and everything, and then the disposal of it. So they had to pay for a skip and pay, and have somebody there just opening all of the bottles of beer, tipping the beer down the drain, the bottle caps in one bin, and there's bottles into, empty bottles into a skip, just to get rid of it all as well. So, yeah, the supermarket's not great in that respect. If you've got the money to risk, yeah, you can take the chance. If you're running on a much smaller operation like we were, it's just not worth it. I mean, we weren't bottling anyway. We weren't set up for that. So we would have had to sort it out and invested it. If I thought I could sell that beer anyway before it turned or, you know, we'd have to turn over that could compete against the supermarket for it, then, yeah, but we it would have been something we would have been doing specially for it. And there was just no guarantee it would have actually sold. So, yeah, it's balancing that, that the risk of that situation. It's just, I just I don't think it's worth it. So it seems to me that we don't really have kind of a, corollary that i can think of in the states as far as retailers go but it seems to me like at that point then your beer selection in the supermarket would not be near as good as the bottle shops there would be less no, esoteric no unique beers right like anything super cool and small batch kind of wouldn't go into the grocery there's a grocery store or supermarket right yeah and this is where this particular brewery and uh, annoyed all the bottle shops they finally learned uh, quite quickly so what they were doing was they then were only supplying the mainstream stuff into supermarkets and the unusual um, esoteric small batch stuff only went to bottle shops with the idea that people would see in the supermarkets and then, uh, you know, then these 
easy drinking coffin beers a lot of people would pick up in the supermarket anyway they the people that would drink those generally aren't the sort of people that would go to the bottle shop and seek out a 750 or something special or you know this year's saison they wouldn't be really be looking for that so it is in a way a bit of a different market but it's, it's one of these things it's um going back about 10 years about eight years maybe once crop in the uk was really starting to pick up all of the, the crop in as we turned around and said if we want craft to go mainstream it's got to be available to everybody everybody's got to be it's got to be accessible it needs to be in supermarkets it, and it needs to be on chilled shelves and all the bottles are surfing and we don't have chilled shelves that's an investment for us but um yeah, they're pushing for it. Everybody's got to have it. We've got to increase the the, the market share. And the brewers listened to it and thought, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. We'll start putting our beers into supermarkets. And within a couple of days of these breweries appearing in supermarkets, like, sell out! <laughs> you sell out to big man, you're screwing over the little guy. And like, but but what, what are we supposed to do? This is what you wanted. And it's, yeah, it, it then kind of, it kind of got a lot bit weird and again, more cliquey. So there was more cliques starting up from that as well. So, yeah. Yeah, a bit weird. <laughs> well, talk to me about some of the the struggles that you had previous to closing. So, with 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 my business, it, it wasn't a straight graph. It was a lot of EKG shit jumping up and down. Good months, bad months. Good years, bad years. Worse years. Yeah. But did you have some struggles along the way that looking back now you were like, man, we pivoted, we reinvested, we made a change. That should have shut us down, or I should have known better after this. Like, yeah. you know, what, what were some of the losses that you suffered? I think. One of the, I mean, looking back on it, and you see where you suddenly think a good idea is to change your core model and try and do something else. Switching over to just the boot app was one. Starting to do more modern beers was another under a different brand name. It's sort of like thinking, this seems to be a good idea. Let's give this a couple of months. This seems a good idea. Let's give this a couple of And to start with, yeah, your profits go back up again. Your turnover goes back up, and then it drops off, and then it goes back up, and then it drops off. And, yeah, if it looks like it's not a solid thing for several months just stop get out <laughs> it's it's just throwing good money after bad I and mean, we were kind of getting on okay we i never set up the brewery to make a load of money i really did set it up so i didn't have to get a proper job looking at it it's like if we were, if my house was dependent on this making money or you know thankfully my wife's job pays our bills at home but if we were relying on me making a salary we'd have been out of business a long time ago because it's just there were months where, for no reason at all, hardly anybody would turn up at the boot tab. And, we, you know, we, looking back, I still don't even know why that is. And I'm, I talked to other people, you know, running the, the tabs at other breweries, and they would have the same sort of thing for a month. It'd just be nobody turn up. And they don't know, you know, nobody can figure out why. And it used to be that you, you could look at the calendar and say, right, this weekend is going to be busy. This weekend will be quiet. This weekend will be busy. This will be quiet. And you could, you know, sort your staffing out accordingly, you know, from when I used to run pubs. And you'd get your beer orders in right. And you kind of knew what each weekend was going to be like. But that's all gone now. And it, that started going about six years ago. And I don't know if it's because there were so many other op- opportunities for people, so many options for them to go elsewhere. And it just spread out a bit too thin. Or a lot of the pubs were starting to open up and a lot of the pubs were starting to sell good beer. So whether people were going mm-hmm. there. But it doesn't it doesn't quite make sense for that because... You can't really justify everybody being quiet of a weekend. I think it's just kind of looking back. It's just the cost of everything has been for people to just live has been going up for quite a few years now. And just every now and again, you know, the last weekend before payday or the middle of the month, people just weren't going out. The numbers would just drop down. So they'd be having a weekend off. So, yeah, there's just been things that you look back and it's like, well, we tried that. It didn't work. We tried this and it did work. And we started doing more events. And that that was good. And it was 
we was found on the event. So we did um, like a weekend, like weird as my happy place. Where all of the beers were really weird and unusual, including I brewed um, the historical beer, Cockale, which is made with chicken. <laughs> and yeah, really weird. Flew out very quickly, no pun intended. Um, but it was a very unusual beer. And all of the beers that weekend were unusual. It's like a little mini beer fest that we had. And we were really busy that weekend. And we'd do sort of like a heritage beer weekend. And they would, those weekends would be really busy. But I do wonder if, because we had events on that drew people in, some people that might have just come in anyway didn't turn up those week, uh, you know, the, the other weekends because they were just going to come along for this thing that was on mm-hmm. at that point. And it does seem that the trade has changed a lot, so that there's lots of events always going on. It seems now that you don't get people going into places unless there is a specific reason for them to go in there, and going for a beer with your mates isn't a reason anymore. So they just don't yeah. seem to do that. Well, I tried to find sort of a growth rate of how many breweries you guys had, you know, when you started versus today. And the short mm. answer is I found a bunch of different opinions, it looks like, and no facts. I have no idea what the actual brewery count was. I mean, maybe nobody does. It, you know, how, how is that? <laughs> I'm curious how that is that we really don't. Like, I guess one of the nonprofit organizations started a tracker, like some sort of like official legitimate tracker. And even that. Oh, yeah, but it's wrong. Yeah, they have 1,800, yeah. so that's the lowest number that I've seen from anybody, which doesn't mean they're wrong, yeah, but they I have no idea. Yeah, they didn't include me on it either. Really? Um, yep, so I pointed that out to them, because this is Seabird, the Society of Independent Brewers, yep. and uh, yeah, I, I've helped them with stuff in the past, um, so like research and stuff, and we've worked together, and they've helped me, and yeah, they released this, and I went, that's wrong, and they said, well, there will be some discrepancies, I said, I'm not on it, went, oh. So yeah, they basically, they represent a group of brewers but they don't generally know the brewers. They don't class brewers above a certain size as well. So it's a bit weird in the UK. You don't have to have a licensed brewery to make beer. So like say the place that we used to run, Beer Nouveau was the licensed brewery. So that was a brewery that would class as one. I brewed under the Temperance Street Brewery brand and other people brewed under that and homebrewers would come in and make their beer that we could then sell commercially for people that were you know, looking to go from homebrew to commercial brewing. They could see it with the actual public drinking their beer. So Tempest Brew was another brewery, but that wasn't registered with HMRC because I did all of the duties for them and it worked through that. Mm. Then we had Origami Brewing, Cuckoo Brewing out of there. So, and, and Steelfish Brewery with Cuckoo Brewing out of there. So these are people where I would handle the HMRC paperwork, but they were completely separate companies to me. I had nothing to do with running of that. So that's now four. So on some lists, that would be four separate breweries. Other lists, it would be one. And then on Seba's track, it was zero because they didn't realize, you know, they did some reason just forgot me. So if you ask HMRC how many breweries there are, you will get a figure of licensed brewing premises. If you ask um, people that do Untapped or Coffeil or other places where they keep a track of all the breweries, you'll get a completely separate figure because they try and keep a better eye of who's actually brewing or not. But it may not really be accurate as to what it is because they will also consider you can set up a, a contract brewing or, or rather a brewing company where you don't brew anything. You just get a brewery to make all the beer for you and you're just labeling it and selling it and for some lists that classes as a brewery and it's not it's just it's a wholesaler really it's a glorified wholesaler so there's no real way to keep an accurate figure of breweries in the in the uk because our laws are weird <laughs> so effectively the taxing body it sounds like they just care that they're able to generate tax revenue on the beer produced not necessarily yeah. who produces it yeah 
Okay. That's it. As long as they get their money, they don't care. Well, that's not good enough for me, so I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, Steve, I want you to be able to tell me how many fucking breweries there are in the UK. I'll be right back. <laughs> So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb, considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, They'd get you covered on that front, too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. Okay, welcome back. I need to know the answer to this question. So let me give you a little context. In the states, from like 2010 to 2023, we went from 1,500 breweries to damn near 10,000. There's a lot of factors, but I think that factor alone is one of the major reasons that profitability also took a fucking vacation and got the hell out. So you mentioned that competition was something that you struggle with over there and that people aren't coming. They're clearly drinking somewhere. How many breweries are there in the UK and how many are there today versus when you started? I got to know the answer. I can't give you a straight answer, but I can make the question even more complicated. Oh, great. Let's do that. (laughs) So um, as an example, when... I was brewing in my garage in Manchester. I think there was something like 10 breweries. But I, I class as a brewery. And I was putting out 40 litres at a time. When I moved into the Arch, I, I was still a brewery. And I was putting out well, 800 to 900 litres at a time. So this is where it gets even more complicated when we're starting to look at how many breweries are around and how many aren't to see whether the industry is growing or shrinking. It could well be that there are more breweries, but the actual amount of beer that's been made is even less because we're seeing this now. A lot of the breweries that are now opening up aren't 10 barrel kits. They aren't sort of like the 2000 litre kits or more. They are, they are working at the one barrel or the two barrel sides of things. So they are much, much smaller. So it may look like the numbers are steady and th- I think the last time I looked was a, a few months ago. The numbers were steady around the 1900 mark, 19 to 2000 uh, breweries. But the overall production volumes is shrinking still. The breweries that are opening are, are smaller than the ones that are closing. So hmm. even though the number of fixed breweries only tells one side of it, the actual number of litres uh, that has been produced 
is a different size of it. And again, we haven't got a clue from that side of thing either. I mean, HMRC should have a better idea of that because that's um, that that's where they get their money is on the litre of alcohol. So they will have a better idea of that, but it's not information that they share. Oh, really? It's not public knowledge? Oh, no. I could probably ask for it and I could probably find it out, but they certainly don't make it easy to find out. It's a but little easier. It's, it's, not as, it's not as nice of a headline grabbing as, you know, 2,000 breweries around or, you know, 200 breweries are shutting or with an extra 500 breweries this year. That's, you know, sounds great. Where people turn around and say, yeah, the, the the beer industry is shrinking by about 20% or things like that. I mean, one thing I found out last night, I was at an event last night, um, cask beer, you know, the England's big drink, mm-hmm. it accounts for 4% of the beer drunk in the UK. And that's tiny. And yeah. that, you know, not of all drinks, just of, of beer. You've got bottles and cans, but you've also got your, your, your keg beers on top of that. 4% is a tiny, tiny amount. So these are sort of like the figures that we're looking at. And that includes all of the, the big multinational brewers' beers as well, and all the old family brewers. So it's not even the craft brewers. Craft cask is a tiny, tiny percentage of the market. And it is getting smaller because a few years ago, I think it was 6% or 8% was cask. So it's shrinking and it's shrinking, and it's hard to work out exactly what the figures are without trying to look at the whole holistic side of things. It's not just the number of breweries, but how much literage each brewery is producing and what sector they would fall into, whether it is the craft sector or whether it is the, the, the multinational or the macro sector. So, yeah, I can't answer it, but I can make it more complicated. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. All right. So let's uh, let's zoom back in and tell me, like, what was kind of the final straw where you knew that it was time to close the brewery? That was coming out of COVID. Um, having had a few months off, uh, which is the first weekends I'd had off bar a couple of weddings, uh, a friend's weddings. So, yeah, it was about the first weekends I'd had off in about six years. And it's happened to me and the missus. And we're, we're 49 now, so we're, what, 47, 48? And we just realized we'd lost our entire 40s to this. And these should be great years that you go out and you know, you're old enough to be irresponsible and old enough to and still young <laughs> enough not to care. So it was that the other way around. But yeah, we just realized we'd lost all of this and and we'd suddenly had time off and time together. And this is great. And I just wanted more of it and realized how tired I was. And looking at the books and just realizing this isn't making money. This isn't, you know, it's barely paying its way. I'm done. That's it. Need Just need to get out. And yeah, it's looking at could I expand it? Could I change the structure? Could I employ somebody to do the day-to-day running and hope that it would get better? But I wasn't, I wasn't willing to, again, to take the risk. I mean, I sound like a great business owner, don't I? No, I'm not willing to take the risk. Well, you, I, but you I wasn't did for years. To... Not like you weren't willing oh, to God, take yeah. that, that risk. You're taking a bunch. These, were, these were my personal risks. Yeah. If I was to impose somebody, I wasn't willing to risk their mortgage um, if I suddenly had to let them go. Employing somebody would be out. Getting somebody in as a shareholder could have done, but then, you know, they would have had to have done all the work and I would have just sort of like sat in the background and I don't think it would have worked unless they were able to really do some massive changes to it. Yeah, it's just there's a lot of other people out there doing this now. I've got my research into the heritage stuff done. I'm, I'm, I've got a bit of a name as a beer writer. I'm, people are asking me to do writing for them and pay me to do it. And I just only realised I've, I've got enough commissions to write now that – I would earn more this year writing than I would from brewing. So sold it, <laughs> sold the brewery. Um, so yeah, we put it up for sale. It was just knowing when to quit eventually. <laughs> it's yeah. And it's just like, yeah, we can't, I can't just keep going like that. I was starting to get health problems as well. My, my blood pressure was up to the point where the doctors were too scared to see me. That's It's, it's hilarious. So, you know, blood pressure for an, an, an average male, white male should be around the 140 over 80. 
well, it should be for me. Um, I went into the, to the doctors with a, a splitting headache and dodgy vision, and he took my blood pressure, and he sent me straight to hospital and refused to deal with me anymore because really? he didn't want to risk a, me having a stroke in his surgery. So, yeah, my blood pressure was um, 210 over 180. So it was just like, you should be dead, get out. So my health was really, really suffering from it. And I think this is part of this whole running a business, and especially in, in this industry, it is unhealthy. It can be incredibly unhealthy for you. It's physically and mentally, it just absolutely drains you and really sort of gets, uh, gets you. And it's like, no, I can't, I can't risk that as well. I'm tired. I'm, I'm getting ill from this. So, yeah, sod it. Done. Out. I think it takes a special kind of person, and I don't mean that in a good way, to uh, work <laughs> 14 hour days, long days, be stressed out, and, and still never really make any long term profitability. I mean, you can have yeah. good months, good weeks, but you know, year over year, you're you're, you're net negative. And uh, to be able to still do that artistically and like sort of convince yourself that this is all still fun, it, you got to be a little fucked up. So I, I think the winners yeah. are the ones who finally get out. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so a couple questions on that front. How did that look? So when you decided it was time or you and your wife decided it was time, did you first decide to put it up for sale? Did you put it up for sale for five million pounds and then decide to come back down to earth? Or how, how did you decide what to do as far as moving forward on the liquidation side? I worked out how much it would be worth as a business and I worked out how much it would be worth if I sold everything separately, so all the kit. And then I had a look to see how much my debts were and just asked to cover my debts so I could walk away. <laughs> I don't care. I could take the time. And I think it worked out that it could have gone for about 200, 250,000 if I could find the right buyer or if I sold all of the kit. It could have gone for about 110, 120, and I ended up selling it for I think it uh, to Katie. She, I mean, she was a friend of mine that she, you know said say she didn't have a clue. She had even less of a clue about business than I did. I think I ended up selling it to her was for fifty thousand purely because that would cover a lot of my debts, not all of them. And she didn't want the six barrel kit. She just wanted to keep the place running. She she was a regular in there. And that's how I met her. And she just wanted it to keep going. She loved the community that we built up there. And she didn't want to see that stop. It's like somebody said, the main difference between my brewery tap and everyone else's is I seem to attract freaks and weirdos, which it is. And sometimes you'd walk into my place and, it, you know, you'd be the only person without a long hair ponytail and a, me a death metal T-shirt on. <laughs> there was one time, I mean, so you got a lot of pubs that turn and say, oh, yeah, we're, you know, we're all welcoming. Everybody's welcome here. We support everybody else. And, and you walk into them and think, do you, do you really? But I was, I was in my, I was working behind my bar one evening and a couple of my mates, Tom and Jonathan, there's like a husband and husband team, they were just stood at the bar and we were just drinking and chatting. And I suddenly looked around and the place was full. So there's about 40 people in there because um, we only thought I had seating at one half of it. And I turned around to them and I said, am I the only straight person in here tonight? And they looked around and went, yeah, yeah, you are. It's like, cool, that's, weird. that's great. But it was one of those places where people who may not feel comfortable anywhere else felt completely comfortable in and katie just wanted to keep that going and um so yeah she bought it off me so enough so that i could cover all of my immediate debts and not have too much outstanding and, and then she just ran it from there and then she i think because she just wanted it to continue she didn't actually look into i don't know working the bar herself occasionally and that would have helped and then she hired you to brew it. that was yeah yeah well i brewed on a freelance basis so i would go in and brew stock um, for her to sell so the beer was always still there it's just i didn't have the hassle of running the bar 
So I got my weekends back and um, I still got to brew the beer and do the research into it and the writing, which is what I really like about it. Just that looking into the whole heritage aspect of it and where beers come from, all of the stuff, all the techniques and that that we've lost that we don't even realize we've lost. So seeing how they used to do stuff in the past and then trying to work out why they did it like that. And then recreating those beers. And it's, I, I just love that aspect of it. And I love talking about beers. You know, you can see I talk a lot. And it was it was good fun to to do all of those without actually having to work the bar every weekend. So it's, it was a kind of a really nice sort of situation, really. And it is going to be a shame when that bar goes. Well, it's I've got three weekends running it now, and then that's it. It's closed, undusted. But it was that sort of place where... The unusual were more than welcome, but without trying to strive to say, yes, we're, we're the pub for all the freaks and weirdos. Come along. Um, it's just I seem to attract them. I think it's part of not being part of any clique or any sort of like hype movement. Um, I was always on the outskirts of it all. So I attracted all the people on the outskirts. And there's a lot more of them than people think. <laughs> I seem to uh, somehow run into people who are you know in this industry that do this podcast that all kind of have that same version of what beer should be that I do. And so you're definitely more on the historical side, but definitely on the artistic side and just, you know, beer shouldn't mm. be boring. It should be open to everybody. It should challenge you mentally, physically, all of it. You don't see that a lot. And unfortunately uh, that may turn up being one of the things that makes the reason that we all aren't brewery owners anymore. That may not work <laughs> economically, yes. but it's fucking cool to go visit and it's cool to talk to the people who did it. Yeah, it is. Uh, though it does, it does get to you. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. I mean, it was about 10 years ago now. I was over in California and a friend of mine's a brewer over there and he took us around a load of brew taps over there and it's like, this is brilliant. I absolutely love this. I remember the following year, we went to New Zealand and I mean, it sounds like I got loads of money. I didn't. One was in Hamilton's with my mum. The other one was, well, no, Leslie got um, redundant. So Leslie, my wife, she got maybe redundant. So we used her redundancy money to go around California. The following year, my brother died. So I used some inheritance from that to go around New Zealand and visit all the brew tabs there. And it's like, love it. I could, I really would love to sort of see this over in, in Manchester. And that, you know, that's kind of what inspired me to, you know, to expand and to open up the brew tab. And it's, it's so much fun. And I think people have lost that fun element of beer. They've, a lot of time they take it too seriously. And I was in a, a, a brew tab a couple of weeks ago. And there's a couple of lads at the bar and they were arguing with the barman about what hops were in the beer. So they asked him what it is and he told them and said, well, it's these hops. No, no, that's no, that's not that's not flavor you'll get from these hops. And, it's, and it's, I was just sat there and I was, I'm trying not to laugh. And the barman just kept looking at me and said, like, shut up, don't say anything. And um, I said, these guys go, no, I'm sorry, I, I think you're I think you're I think your brewer needs to train you better at this. And uh, they walked off and they sat down and said to him, why didn't you tell him you are the brewer? <laughs> and like, no point. It would they, they would have just latched onto him then and asked him so many questions and just got really weird about it. And they're just forgetting that, yes, knowing what hops are in a beer helps you to know what sort of flavors it's going to have before you order it. But once you've got it, just enjoy it. Just drink it and have fun with it. You don't have to analyze or overanalyze every single aspect of it. Breeding did new styles. And one I came across um, last year, Cold IPA. Absolutely love it when that's done right. But then again, you also get it done wrong where you've got lots of breweries just rebadged their um, India Pale Lagers as a cold IPA. It's a different mm-hmm. style for a start. But because it's new and nobody really knew any different, they were just slapping a different label on it. And don't get me started on West Coast. So, yeah, so many beers pretending to be a West Coast IPA. And you look at the thing and this is a hoppy lager. What, what the hell have you done here? It's just West Coast IPA is fashionable at the moment. 
So everybody was just slapping West Coast IPA. It's a West Coast IPA style. It's not a West Coast, then, is it? So, yeah, that just annoys me. When you order a beer thinking it's going to be something and it's not the beer that you've actually ordered. Well, so you, you experienced the, the pub trade for years. You did a brewery. Yeah. You helped get yeah. other breweries off the ground, some of which are still yeah. open, some are not. Most, most are open, really. Most are still going. So what do you think is the right way? Like, what's the model that works? Or is it... You just got to love it and accept that you're never really going to be profitable. Are there breweries that you know that are profitable? And if so, what they do different than you, I guess, would be the question. I think the first thing there is to understand why you're doing it. If you're setting up to be a profitable brewery, you've got to have a completely different mindset and, um, and business. If you enjoy doing it and you think it's going to become profitable, don't just don't just don't go large. Most of the people I'm helping at the moment including myself, it's small scale in your own garage or a workshop in, on your own premises that you own so that there is no rent, no rates, no waste collections, things like that. You, it's cut the overheads right out because when I was brewing out of my garage, even though it's 40 litre batches, that was when I was most profitable. Um, once you start expanding, there's so many other costs that come in that you probably don't realise. You've got to know what all of these are and this is where brewers need to talk this is where shows like this are great because when it, i have been listening to a few of them it there is so much that will go wrong and there are so many bad decisions you're gonna make but if we all know about them we'll hopefully not make them and um so yeah and it, it isn't all sort of like unicorns and rainbows and light and sweetness there is a lot of shit that happens in this industry that we don't really talk about and we really should but um yeah, my advice is if you're going to do it as a business, do it as a business. You Give yourself a very strict limit, and as soon as it's not working, sell up, get out. Don't think it's going to get any better in a month or two. Or don't think it's going to do this. You'll drain your money. You'll drain your contingency money. You may lose your house. Don't risk it. Give it a go. Give yourself a very – part of your business plan absolutely must be an exit strategy. So many brewers that I've talked to when I haven't set up, I'll say to them, what if it goes wrong? At what point do you stop? And I'm like, well, I, I, I wouldn't really know. I don't I haven't really thought about that. I want to be positive. I'm being positive. I'm trying to save your house here. You know, <laughs> don't, don't mortgage house on something that you've got no way of getting out. Set up, if you want it as a business, you've got to be absolutely nailed down on every single penny of every single cost. And every time any of your costs change, change yours as well. One thing that's happened over here, I, I don't know what it's like in the States, is the cost of making beer has gone up and gone up and gone up and gone up, and the breweries were absorbing those costs, and the beer was being sold to the pubs at the same price. So it would be like £60 a firkin or £80 a firkin for, for years, even though the profit on those firkins was dropping. And then all the breweries were like, well, a few of them were like, no, we're, we're now putting it up. We've been absorbing it for too long. We're putting it up. But when they put it up, it's because the costs have gone up again. So they're still at a really low profit margin on the on, on each um, item. And the pubs have been doing the same as well. And because of that, beer is a lot cheaper over the bar than it should be. And people expect it to stay cheap over the bar because you know the cost of living has gone up. Everything else has got more expensive, but not beer because the breweries and the bars have been absorbing those costs. Don't do that. If your costs make it go up, put your beer up. And if people stop buying it, then you know it's too expensive to run it as a business, get out. Because otherwise, you're going to start losing your money. And it's going to be you that pays for somebody else's sort of like fun and down the pub. You might as well just go into the pub and buy everybody in the pub around. 
and do that and you'd be far more pa- uh, popular. <laughs> you really would. I'd, I'd have probably lost less money. Um, well, frankly, I, hopefully I should get it all back when I sell everything. But you look at a lot of pubs and uh, a lot of breweries and the time I said, oh, well, I lost five, about five, five thousand pounds a month. Go into a pub once a week and just buy everybody in there a drink. It'll be cheaper for you and you'd be, and you'd be better light. So yeah, it's, if you're doing it for business, it is a business. Don't mess about on anything. Keep a constant eye on it. And it sounds like a lot of work. And it is. You're running a business, for God's sake. If you're doing it because you want to have fun, to make a bit of beer, to sell it on, and you're doing it at a much smaller scale. And a lot of the breweries that are setting up in, in England now are doing this, where the brewers have a day job. So they're working three or four days a week. And then they're brewing and selling one or two days a week. So it's kind of like a side job for them. And it, they don't have to make their mortgage by selling beer and that side of things yeah there's a lot more that you can do you can sell the beer less you can absorb more costs you can experiment a bit more but you've also got to realize you're doing this for fun and as soon as it stops being fun get out it's just don't don't turn your hobby into something you hate because otherwise you'll leave it and you won't come back to it for years and and that's a shame because you know you've lost something that you enjoyed yeah that happened to me so (laughs) what is the legacy of beer nouveau like what do you want that to live on if you never open again as a brewery what do you want that to be remembered by your audience your fans people who don't know you across the world i think my legacy at the moment is that gobby shit on social media um (laughs) i yeah i think and i think i've achieved it i've made people look at beer in the past in a different way than they did and that's what I wanted right from the start. I, I wanted them to stop looking at beer in the past, whether it's 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 300 years ago. I wanted them to stop thinking they didn't know what they were doing. The beer was shit. I set out and I proved that it wasn't. We just didn't think of it in the same way. And that's kind of exactly what I've been finding. And I'm still finding that. And um, we even so, and this is it going forward now, we're concentrating more on the writing as well. It's getting that knowledge out there we've lost so much knowledge about beer history uh, about brewing techniques why things were done all of these sort of things and it's stuff that can save us money now it's like the, the latest thing i was looking at was um mash hopping when you put uh, hops into the mash is that why would you do that because the oils boil off the, the um the acids don't i summarize properly but when you start looking at the overall sort of like the holistic side of things i love the word holistic you start realizing that hops weren't just used for acids for bitterness or aroma for uh, oils for aroma. They were used in the barrels for the enzymatic contents. So the analytic enzymes that convert on the mat, on the malt that convert the starches to sugars are also on the hops. So when you put a handful of hops into a barrel, that kick starts that process again and the beer will continue to ferment and keep the beer fresh in the barrel. So when you add them into the into the mash tun, you're basically adding a load of enzymes to it. So you get some breweries these days, they'll just chuck a, a like a jug full of um, enzymes into the mash to increase the conversion. Or you'll stick in some uh, something like a Wayman's Pilsner malt, which is high in enzymes. So that will increase the conversion. Now, you go back a couple of hundred years when the state of the malt was a lot worse for the diastatic power than it is now. So you're getting less sugars converted out of it because there weren't as many enzymes. You chuck a load of hops in with that, you've increased the enzyme content. So that's the current theory that, we, you know, I'm now going to, once I've got a brew kit set up again, mm-hmm. going to start looking into that and see if that theory actually holds and this sort of thing. So this is stuff that just nobody else is doing. And um, it's a bit of a shame. So that's 
you know, my future, open up another brewery in my garage this time. So, yeah, build a new garage that's um, wood passing environmental health inspection now because since I stopped brewing in there, the roof has collapsed and parts of it, it floods <laughs> and there's mold all over the place. So, yeah, I wouldn't even drink any of the beer that's stored in there, let alone make any bit there in there at the moment. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's kind of my legacy, getting people to look at historical beer differently because I'm what, the, the youngest of all of the beer historians by a good 20 or 30 years, I think. And uh, well, maybe 20. I, I've got a different way of putting it across, and um, because I'm quite irreverent about it all as well, um, I don't, I don't hold, any, I don't have any heroes, I don't have an ego. Um, I, I will, you know, cut down anyone, um, including myself. I think it's, um, it comes across a bit better, and um, as I say, I don't have an ego, but I think I put it across better. So it's, um, yeah, I think that's. That would be my legacy. I've never really thought about my legacy. <laughs> I'm still going. Um, but yeah, I think that is a change that I've made to this industry. And I'm quite proud of that, actually. So even if everything else goes to itself, I'm quite proud that I've got people to start thinking about heritage beers in a slightly different way. Well, so then the obvious next question is if you had to go back in time, would you do it all over again? Yes, but I'd make changes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be the whole point of the podcast. So I would hope that you would. <laughs> I wouldn't have moved out of my garage. That's the, the first and foremost one. I I would have, instead of buying a bigger kit, the thing is, if I went back in time, I would probably at the, the time would have made the same decisions. I don't think I made any bad decisions at the time. I think I made the right decisions at the time. But hindsight is wonderful. And you say, okay, that turned out to be the bad decision. So because the market changed, a decision I made before it changed was a good one at the time, but turned out to be a, a, a bad one. So knowing how, you know, the future, what it held, I would have been said, not down the garage that I've got here, built a bigger and better one, sorted out a bigger and better kit in there and just carried on from that. Because then you keep your costs right down. Looked at possibly just opening up a small bar somewhere instead. Because um, so the overheads on that would have been a lot less than a full brew kit. So, yeah, I, I would have been a lot more careful with my overheads just to try and minimize those and make sure I could walk away from things a lot easier if the, if the need was there. I was actually really struck by, in 2017, the Brewer's Journal did an interview with you. And one of the things that you said was, <laughs> it's long, but I'm going to read it. When we set up, mm. we had some pretty high hopes for it. These weren't for it to become UK's most sought after brewery. They weren't for it to become the UK's biggest brewery or even for it to become just large enough and just famous enough for a multinational to come along with a multi-million pound check and buy us out. Our high hopes... I would have loved that, though. <laughs> <laughs> said our high hopes were that people would like our beers as much as we did. And that was six years ago. Do you think that you achieved that? Are you walking yeah. away with that? Yeah, I think so. During the time of the boot out, we built up a really nice, regular customer base who kept coming out week after week when they could. They loved it. I was getting invited to go and do talks on Hotage Beers. The, the website that I got, the, which I, you know, the Vinico website, which I use as a blog, gets quite a lot of hits. I've got a huge, you know, not a, sort of like a celebrity follower on social media, but you, you look at some breweries, some high breweries, and they've not got that many more followers than me. And, you know, they're paying somebody to do all of their social media content. I'm just putting random crap out there as, as of when I think about this. Yeah, I think we've, I've built up a group of people all over the country and a few over the world as well who whenever they were in Manchester would always come and try our beers because they loved the beer. They loved talking with me about all of the, the heritage stuff that we were doing about that. Yeah. I never set out to become rich doing this because if you set up any business with the idea you're going to become rich, you're going to fail. But um, I just wanted people to enjoy the beer 
And yeah, I think I managed that. Well, congratulations. That's Although there were some shockingly bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they're always going to be, though. Well, tell everybody how to find you now. So you're you're doing beer writing. You have some yeah. plans going forward. Like, how do we how do we find what you're writing and what you think and how you can help? Um, I'm still sort of active on Twitter or X, but that's fading out now. I'm over on Blue Sky on Facebook. Just the usual. I, I can't do Instagram. I, I just can't figure it out. I'm too old. And it, it started out as just like, um, it looked like Flickr with comments. And now all of a sudden, it's so much more. And I, was, I just can't understand what the hell is going on. And people said, oh, you, you know, something will happen. I'll say, oh, where can I find out more about this? And say, oh, it's an Instagram story. Well, what's that? You know, how, how do you read that? You know, you, you, and because I'm older, my eyes are going as well. And you, it comes up on the screen when, you, when you're not looked in and, you, and you're looking at it and you start reading this text over an image. And you know, you're squinting at the screen, and next thing you know, it's moved on to the next one, and there's no back button, and you can't pause it. It's like when you ask for somebody, it's like, oh, well, how do you do this? Oh, here's a video. And you spend more time back, sort of like trying to rewind the video so that you can actually see what's going on. Give me text and give me pictures so that I can actually go at my own pace. God, I really am a grumpy old man, aren't I? <laughs> you are right now, yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> Since I stopped working all the time, and I'm just sat here on my own, thinking, oh, whoa, I don't like that. Because I'm not having to deal with people, I can I can be a lot more a lot more myself, which is probably not a good thing. <laughs> I'm gonna link your website and your socials on the the show notes in the show. But what kind of stuff do you have on the website that you can tell people about? Most of what's on there kind of falls into two categories uh, of the writing. One is about heritage brewing and all of the things I've found out and the research we've done about the different brewing techniques, the different beer styles that they're around, and how to recreate them. And the other half which is where I get most of the, the hits from, is on the legal aspects of brewing in the UK, which is um, something I've fallen into because I have a, a knack of being able to turn legalese into layman's so I can look at white, uh, white papers and the, the, the proposal, the, uh, the law proposals, or the, bill, uh, the bills on this, and be able to figure out what they're, what they're actually talking about and what they actually mean. We've recently gone through a massive change in the duty structure over here. And it's incredibly simple, but put forward in an incredibly complicated way. So even now, brewers are still struggling with aspects of it. The government don't put out a really easy way of doing it. They just say, well, you can do this and you can do that. It's like, actually, no, because if we were to do that, we'd be breaking the law. So their training uh, piece for how a brewery, you know, how to work out the duty that you pay was about somebody running a wedding reception event and what duty was liable on the wine that they were buying in and what duty was liable on the beer that they were buying in, <laughs> that person would not be paying the duty. The brewery making the beer would pay the duty. The thing you're making the wine would pay the duty. That person would not. So it's like, yeah, they, they're not doing that. What, what, where have you come up with this idea from? So I've been covering a lot of the changes that have been going on in the duty system and in the, in the UK alcohol law and putting those up. So it, Sounds really nerdy and it kind of is, but I get it. I think I get it across. I've been told I get it across in a, in a quite a nice, easy to understand way. So, yeah, it's interesting. So if you ever want to know what's going on behind the scenes in the industry, yeah, that's it. Because also I don't pull punches at times, which 
I try to not name people, but um, sometimes it's very obvious. And if somebody deserves being named, then yes, I do. (laughs) And sometimes that happens, yeah. All right. Well, I'll definitely recommend everybody go check it out. I'll link it and post some stuff on social media. I honestly can't thank you enough for spending the last couple hours explaining this to me. So, you know, a lot of what you guys went over there. Like said, a couple of hours, hasn't it? <laughs> a lot of what you I guys. I can go on more. I mean, you, you sent me over like a whole list of questions that um, you sometimes cover, and I was thinking, okay, well, I've got all of the um, so like the, I've got an answer for this, I've got an answer for that, I got on this, and yeah, I think you've gone for about a tenth of them. Yeah, I mean, I could go on for another couple of hours. <laughs> yeah, so that's why I use it as an outline because otherwise, well, if I try yeah. to go through all of them, we'll be here all day. Especially with me. I mean, the last question I won't touch on though, but I would say it's me. One thing I will say, if, one question I would like to come on this is yeah. one of the questions you, you occasionally ask is, "How's working in the industry affected my relationship with alcohol?" Mm-hmm. This is something that is not talked about enough in our industry. When I was 18 and I started in the bar work as a salon, I was testing up to 20 different beers every morning to make sure they're ready to go on. By the age of 19, I was an alcoholic. So I am actually an ex-alcoholic who is also a brewer and who still drinks. A lot of people in our industry drink a lot and they don't realize how much it may be affecting them. And it's I, I think as an industry globally, we need to just stop trying to hide that and just acknowledge it. You can have a drink and you can have a laugh, but you've got if you're suddenly realizing that you turn around and say, I'm having a day off today, then you need to limit the amount that you're drinking every other day as as well. I mean, I I'm having a heavy day or heavy week this week. I've been you know saying I've been out the last couple of nights and I've just had free cans while we've been talking uh, like this now. Uh, but I think it doesn't do us any good physically or mentally. And it, overall, it, it seems great at the time, but it just adds to the stress. And we just need to recognize what we're doing and just support each other. And call people out when you think when you think that your mate of yours in the industry is, is having too much to drink. Just turn around to them and say, do you need that one? Or are you OK? Do you want to talk about something? Not in a patronizing sort of like way, but just like, yeah. have, have you actually thought about how much you're drinking? Because even if they get really riled up about it then and they have a go at you, I'm fine. Or if enough people do it, sink in later. they will start thinking themselves, okay, maybe there is an issue. Yes, you're going to annoy people, but I'd rather somebody hated me than somebody became an alcoholic. So, yeah, that, that, that was one question in there that, yeah, I think it is something that we, yeah, it, it needs talking about in our industry. It seems to be fairly universal, but there's definitely some breweries that I've been to that have more culture of beer at 10 a.m. than others. And, and there's yeah. some that have, you know, for sure, more of a problem. But yeah, unfortunately, it, yeah. it seems universal across the board. It, yeah, it does. And it is. And I was recently at a brewery and I'm obviously not going to name the brew because of the guy that was there. He was working at the brewery. He wasn't a brewer, but he was sort of like one of the casual workers. And he's teetotal. And he's a, he's another ex-alcoholic. He's gone to AA meetings. He's got his name of it and the phone number of his sponsor in his pocket at all times. And he was showing me this. And he was asking how I managed to be an ex-alcoholic in the industry. And basically, I couldn't give it up. I could cut it right down. And I've managed to, to control it. So I'm no longer an alcoholic, but I still drink. And probably still drink a bit too much. But no one knows as much as people think I drink. <laughs> so, yeah, that's really strong for him to be able to do that with no alcohol whatsoever and i really hope he's, he continues with that and if he does come back to drinking then he's able to keep it in, in you know in, in moderation i mean that's the main thing alcohol in a beer should be fun and when it stops being enjoyable and fun for everybody that's around it then there's an issue there we're either taking it too seriously and being gatekeeping and ourselves about it or we're just really destroying ourselves 
So people need to get back and just enjoy a pint. <laughs> yeah, chill the fuck out and drink a beer. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to wrap up the interview. I'm going to stick around. I'll talk to you a little bit off uh, off there. But again, yeah. I absolutely appreciate it. I think we learned a lot today. Uh, your story was amazing and I uh, appreciate you sharing it. <laughs> it's certainly long. <laughs> Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity. And balancing the toxic positivity in the crapper industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer or seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping in any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a damn brewery. Free play. Media. Media.